message customer service and be like, hey, there's this podcast I listened to that told me to come to you guys. You should listen to them too. So you could do that. Send an unsolicited email. That's my recommendation. umbrella stand in new york city i'm your host shane and i'm your host ishan and welcome to episode 212 of total party thrill a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours in this episode we're sharing some super secret plot hooks to use in your home game but first the rogue traders consult an expert in the dynasty unwarranted campaign and later the warlord leads the attack in the character creation forge total party thrill is brought to you this week by cobalt press Do you want to learn how to be a game master, to world build, to run combat, to design games, and more from pros? Then check out the multiple any winning kobold guides over at koboldpress.com. Shane, I have heard that it is difficult to win an any award. In fact, it's an honor just to be nominated, even once. I I hear that's true. If you get nominated (laughs) once, you should be very proud. Especially if you get nominated only once. Only once, exactly. (laughs) Tell me more about these any-winning Cobalt guides, Isha. <laughs> well, each guide covers a broad topic and includes advice from multiple industry pros like Keith Baker, Shauna Germain, Monica Valatinelli. Try it again. Monica Valatinelli, Wolfgang Bauer, Margaret Weiss, Rob Schwalb, and many more. And if you don't know who those are, well, I don't know. Go to the link in the show notes and find all, all about them. Mm-hmm. So there is a Cobalt guide for almost every topic. Magic, plots, campaigns, even board game design. Each of these tomes is chock full of advice valuable to newcomers and veteran gamers alike. So find out more at coboldpress.com and pick up the book that's right for you. Speaking of learning from, well, I guess not the pros, but from us. Uh, <laughs> we did get... Definitely more accurate that way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we actually did get uh, contacted by... Uh, An academic. Who is doing a research paper on the way that role-playing games are changing, or I guess the, the way that people are uh, playing role-playing games is changing. Like, uh, what is it, how's the dynamic at the, the table changing uh, as years go on and this is getting more popular? Yeah, and, and specifically focused on storytelling in role-playing games, right? Uh, which is interesting because when I was in college, I think you would have been laughed out of the room if you had tried to make a thesis out of that. I mean, when I was in college, you would have been laughed out of the room if you tried to tell a story while you were playing a role-playing game. All right. See, I was in college during the financial crisis, so you Which were one? laughed out of the room for being an English major. <laughs> <laughs> Humanities were useless. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I think the, the more than anything, I think that's a, a strong indicator of where role-playing as a as a form is in the zeitgeist because very seriously could not have done that probably five or ten years ago. Yeah, at all. And I think that probably the thing that sort of was the most eye-opening to me is that she was basically asking us questions about like how role-playing used to be and then now. And I was like, well, in this era and then in this era. And I was like, wait, why am I? I'm talking about multiple eras of, of role-playing. Like, wow, okay. You know, like this has been around for a long time and it has changed a lot. And mm-hmm. the kind of people who play it have, all, have also changed a lot and like it's expanded. And also you're old. Also true, yes. I mean, I was going to start by saying I have played in multiple eras of RPGs. (laughs) All right, speaking of um, 
old people not really knowing what they're doing. Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k role-playing game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Deathworld Iblis Prime in the frontier city of Meridian, the rogue traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and Prophet. And most recently, the rogue traders have finally met the secretive organizer of the Technogangers League, uh, who is the Seer Unknown. Turns out that's an Eldar Farseer, which is a space elf super psychic. Uh-huh. Uh, who tells them very vaguely about uh, a scheme to keep the Technogangers venturing out into the jungle. Uh, we don't really quite understand this whole scheme because we're not really that interested because, you know, are we getting paid? Not yet. All right, that, that's fine. Uh, but we have been told that it involves a search for lost ruins, collecting Wraithbone, uh, which is like this strange Eldar material that the Eldar can like stick their souls into in order to save them. Yeah, so basically you have a whole conversation with her and are so confused by the end of it that when the uh, when the team that competes in the league, uh, when Flair, Horst, and uh, Trix all return, nobody really knows to make of it. And this is partially because the players turned over at the table. <laughs> so like the players who were in the league <laughs> and like had that conversation had a were different the next night. <laughs> yeah. So we had to do a little catch up. Um and that was not a very well articulated catch up, if I'm being honest. So um basically you decide you need to do more research because the scheme doesn't quite make sense. And also you don't really know that much offhand about the Eldari, right? Like they're a Xeno species None of you have had any real reason to have, like, lots of discourse with them. You know, you maybe have fought them in your history of, of you know, uh, various fighting for the Imperium-type jobs. Yeah, shot a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But other than that, like, Eldar are pretty strange. So you go to the one actual Eldar you know, who is your bosun, Sarith, uh, and is actually a Drukari or a Dark Eldar. Um yeah. But given that you don't have any other Eldar contacts, you figure, eh, he'll do. Yeah. Uh, turns out it's uh, kind of insulting to confuse the two. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. eh, whatever. But, you know, he's your bosun. He'll take it out of you later. <laughs> Next time you slip up on the ship. So then Sarath explains to us the ancient split that happened in the Eldar race uh, long, long ago, which is, of course, any, for anyone who's played D&D, basically a rehashing of the split between elves and drow. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were the Exodites, who are the Eldar Amish, who anticipated the uh, fall that was coming, the... Um, well, yeah, so, so to take it back a step, right, like, the early Eldar civilization was so decadent and, like... Um, hedonistic, really, that they literally gave birth to Slanesh, the chaos god of pleasure, um, who they call She Who Thirsts. Yeah, they uh, warped her into existence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like ten thousand so, years ago. Cool. Right. Yeah. So, in anticipation of this, like witnessing this, um, and seeing that this could happen, the Exodites were the ones who said, "No, no, 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 we're leaving. Like, we're not, we're not going to be a part of this anymore." So they went off into their own planets. Um, and and live this like austere, very primitive kind of existence, far from the webway, um, hoping that by minimizing their decadence, that Slanesh won't be able to harm them. The Drukari, the Dark Eldar, on the other hand, embraced this damnation. 
So as Sareth has already demonstrated, uh, their capacity to inflict violent suffering and pain on other people and sometimes themselves is what sustains the Dark Eldar and protects them from Slanesh, even though they know that eventually they will be consumed by her, but they can prolong their lives uh, as long as possible by bondage. Because mm-hmm. this is Warhammer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and then the average Eldar, the craft world Eldar, they adopted what's called the Asuryani path, uh, which is a fight against Slanesh. So they use this discipline training and these various um, like paths and principles. They have spirit stones. Um, and they use the guidance of farseers, like the, the seer that you've met, to strengthen their souls and then protect them from Slanesh. Um, and then... When they die, they continue living on in the infinity circuit of their craft world. So they basically have these huge mechanical planets that they've created that can store their souls and save them from Slanesh. Oh, so uh, they become part of a giant mech city, huh? Kind of, yeah. And you say that you don't like anime. Mm-hmm. I don't like Eldar, but here we are. <laughs> And yet, who was the one who brought the Eldar into play here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> all right, so with all that explained, Sareth does say that he doesn't really fully understand what Flair has told him. Uh, he suspects that we're missing some sort of key information because Wraithbone is just a substance. It's uh, it's like concrete in the real world, right? Plasteel or rockcrete in Warhammer, uh, it's not inherently tied to souls. Yeah, it's like a good conductor, basically. And and so his point is, if she's interested in Wraithbone, it must be something to do with conducting. But Wraithbone itself isn't the goal. Like, that must be the means to an end. You're missing something here. Right. The, the Technogangers are not out in the wilderness collecting rocks that contain Eldar souls. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which is what you thought you were doing. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> with this new bit of information and a ton of lore dump... You decide to do what you do best. More research. And we'll find out what we find out next week. So this week, we are back with another episode of our surprisingly popular series on plot hooks. Mm -hmm. Well, if you do something rarely enough, people tend to miss it. It's true. Although this is our four. This is plot hooks four, uh, live free or plot harder. Mm -hmm. Or... um, there's no other four. No, there's uh there's the Indiana series. Jones and the plot hooks of the Crystal Skull. Mm-hmm. 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 Keep going. Uh, Give me a Harry Potter. Oh, that's plot hooks of fire. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this is oh, a, a new pl- episode a new, a new four, a new plot hook. Yeah. Uh huh. Yep. Rocky Four does not have a subtitle. It's just Rocky <laughs> Four. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> what about Rambo Four? A uh, Rambo Four was called Rambo, so this is just called plot hook. <laughs> it's just plot. Uh-huh. Okay. Hook. This is Hook. <laughs> it is us and Dustin Hoffman and Rufio. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Ishan, what makes a good plot hook? Uh, okay, so um, a good plot hook is going to inspire the GM and also get the players excited to play in it. Uh, it can draw players in a variety of directions, right? It's not a railroad. You're putting a plot hook down on the table uh, and then... Different players can look at it and think of different angles or different paths it could eventually head down. It is the beginning of an adventure or maybe even a campaign, uh, but it doesn't necessarily tell you where it's going to end up. Yeah, and then I think the other thing is we want to make sure that our plot hooks are manageable within the parameters of an RPG. 
right? So there are some incredibly intricate plots that you can um, create in the Da Vinci Code novel that just will not ever work as a role-playing game. So we want to keep it within our range. All right, so as we do with these episodes, we are going to give you a series of plot hooks. We're going to talk you through what it is, uh, how we'd run it, what system uh, we'd run it in, what level the characters should be, and then potential challenges for running it. So first up, the war against the endless armies of the God Mage has almost been lost, and the last hope of the free peoples is Espelt, a rare mineral recently discovered to be anathema to the Magitech that powers the God Mage's war machines. So now a small team of researchers who have experience working with this volatile substance have been drafted into a specialized military unit that must strike behind enemy lines to set up Espelt pylons that will sap the enemy's strength. So, of course, this is something that can be reflavored to anything. The, the key here is that, this yes, this is a military campaign, which we've talked about a lot, but the PCs are not primary combatants. They are these researchers. They are scientists. They are uh, skilled professionals who uh, may have, like, non-combat abilities. Uh, they understand how to use whatever this, like, MacGuffin substance is uh, that it can, you know, prevent the the armies of the enemy from, like, completely swarming over... Uh, the the last freelance, but the point here is that this small group of basically non-combatants goes into battle surrounded by hundreds of nameless grunts who are there to die in the mud while the scientists carry out delicate procedures in the heat of battle. It's very World War Z. Yeah, and and way back I think it was was episode six maybe where we talked about alternative combat objectives. This is very much like. Um, sort of taking that to the extreme and being like, hey, guess what? You are playing specifically the people here to fulfill the alternate combat objectives. And like all of the like Imperial Guard, um, like World War One trench warfare is happening all around you, but that is mostly getting narrated. Uh, while, you know, you are sort of dealing with the repercussions of it, seeing it happen uh, in, in the distance. And, you know, occasionally people like break through the line in order to uh, fight you hand to hand, but it doesn't need to be like all out um, like fighting in the mud all the time because you are focused on something much more important. Right, yeah. It's um like the combat will be the exception for you, right? So you don't have to worry about managing like mass combat because that's all background. And it's only when, you know, some exceptional uh, enemy has broken through or, or laid a trap or something like that where you might actually face direct threat. Right. You know, maybe like one giant uh, war troll has, like breaks through the line and then you know you've got to like pick up a gun and figure out how to do this or probably you'll use some sort of like magitech or or like skill checks in order to actually defeat this thing right like drop a pylon on its head rather than like shooting it to death or stabbing it mm -hmm. so i think the key to making this like actually interesting is yes there will be hand-to-hand -hand fighting with enemies occasionally when they actually break through but you want to you want to make the war that's happening all around actually feel like it is a it is affecting people, you know, because in like war fiction, most of that is happening internally, like within like the the minds of uh, the people who are sort of watching people all around them die. But that doesn't always necessarily work when you're dealing with people at a table. So I would throw in things like random explosions. Um, like if you're using something like initiative order or, you know, once per round, whatever a round is in the system that you're using, uh, make a check to see if like something crazy happens on the battlefield that that affects people. Right. Mm -hmm. I've, I've done things where like 
all right, you're fighting in a battle, like uh, you're facing off against a smaller squad in the middle of a giant battle. Uh, I roll a die. Oh, look at that. Um, a like the the body of a woolly mammoth gets flung uh, by like a, a gargantuan creature into the middle of the battle. You know, dodge or or you know suffer the chance that you're gonna break a leg is like its its trunk like basically s- smashes your leg. Yeah, when you talk about Magitek, I I feel like this also works really well if it's like you know like giant mecha and and kaiju. Right. And like that is sort of this battle that is raging on that's affecting the ground, obviously, but like is ultimately nothing you can directly influence. And you just have to try and stay out of the the path, you know. So like when they go rolling and tumbling uh, in hand to hand combat, like you've got to duck out of the way and avoid getting stomped on. But it's not like you're directly like, you know, taking up a a, a gun and and shooting at a kaiju isn't going to do anything, you know. Right, like this is Pacific Rim or uh, Godzilla is fighting like Mothra, but you are the team of scientists on the ground who are exposed while that battle is happening in the city. I always wanted to be Charlie Day in in Pacific Rim. (laughs) (laughs) That's the real hero there. (laughs) So um, the point here is that the game is about pushing all the way through all of this in order to focus on the task at hand. You might be taking penalties or, you know, you're basically coming up with um, interesting or innovative ways to avoid getting, you know, uh, shot randomly or uh, crushed by a building that's falling or, you know, stomped by Godzilla. And in order to win the battle, quote unquote, win the battle, They've got to establish the Esbolt pylon or whatever Magitek MacGuffin it is, right? Put that in place and then that secures the immediate area, right? By creating some sort of force field or like an EMP pulse or whatever. And then your job is get the hell out as quickly as possible while the infantry covers you because like you're not killing all the enemy. That's not what this is about. Right. Uh, This was inspired by um, some reading I was doing on like the Navajo code talkers in World War II. They... Uh, were using uh, Navajo as a code that the Germans and the Japanese couldn't break because, you know, no no one else was uh, speaking a language like this. Right, and apparently Navajo is incredibly nuanced and difficult to learn as well. very complicated syntax. Uh, So I think this also works really well as like a comms unit. Uh, Like you're basically going in to set up a communications tower so that you can call in an airstrike. The airstrike comes in and you all get the hell out. Mm-hmm. Um, that works in like Vietnam or I'm thinking in 40k right you always have the the guy with the Vox unit this could be an entire like comms unit specifically yeah I think in Vietnam or 40k you got that in the right order you call in the airstrike <laughs> and then get out <laughs> in, in like maybe World War II or Korea it's more like you get out and then call in an airstrike <laughs> <laughs> or you call in an airstrike and that's it yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a twist on a trench warfare game for people who are maybe tired of the constant slog, um, you know, rolling to see if you have trench foot, uh, rolling to see if you like take the next trench or if you get shot and then bring in a new character. In terms of how I'd run it, I think it would either be low level since the PCs aren't experienced combatants, right? Like they're, they're scientists. Uh, or I'd do it mid-level, but I would require everyone to be specced for skills or for research and specifically not for combat. So so what about the aspect of 
dealing with the loss of your comrades or losing friends, you know, like having to deal with the the death around you from trying to complete your mission. I think that's a good point. Part of it is going to depend on your table. Like there are some tables that will not be able to ignore that no matter what. And, and you know, still would do that even if you were just playing a tabletop war game. Um, but it doesn't mechanically show up in a lot of older systems. So I think you'll you'll need to bring it into play um, in terms of RP if you're running it in something like Gumshoe or like Fall of Delta Green uh, where, you're, you know, they have skill systems that we like a lot. But I think this also works really well in like a traditional Powered by the Apocalypse game. You know, those games that your stats are basically five emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that you and I have not really liked about some PBTA games is that when you suffer, you know, damage, the damage track is basically like you take a hit to one of those stats and you feel like the opposite of that emotion often. Right, so um, you may have uh, you may have like a stat that's like cunning, uh, and then you instead of uh, suffering HP damage, you um, what's it? My again? cunning becomes impaired. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you like you have a hard time thinking straight, and you become like rattled, right. you know. And then you're basically taking a minus two on on those checks. And I think we've kind of been like, oh, that's a little weird that like the mechanics play out in a way where you you have to feel an emotion or you are like, you know, taking penalties to skills. But I think in this one, that actually works really well because you can look at basically these five different emotions on your sheet and say, how do, how has this affected me? Mm-hmm. Right? I have taken damage in some way to my ability to fully function by seeing like my friend die over there or like watching a building crumble and like knowing there are people inside does that affect my cunning does that that does affect my like willpower my drive like you know um and then uh, you can see like someone is starting to 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 crack to to lose it once you have multiple emotions that are being affected yeah and then how about length this is probably something i'd run for maybe six sessions so you know there's a finite number of pylons and you'd probably set that up at the beginning hey seven pylons you got to put those in place that that's what wins the war you know and, it, and it's going to be less about like do we win or do we not win um and more about the feelings of what you have lost along the way mm-hmm. in order to succeed so i think i would i almost like it more as a one shot um because i think like one of the challenges that's going to come from this is making the death of these other characters like basically of npcs matter to the group um if you do it as a one shot you can spend your time creating those other characters right at the table and then see them die by the end of four hours. Um, I think that might be a little bit easier rather than having the GM introducing those NPC guards and, and you know, the people making the actual sacrifice. I think, I think it could work as like a quick con game where you spend the first hour setting up like who the party is, but then also who are the people who are escorting right. you so that you have those connections. And then it's basically just one pylon uh and that's and that's the mm-hmm. end of it like it's the final pilot mm-hmm. right basically um for a longer session i would probably spend most of the first session just doing the connections uh and then you know sort of set up the the assault or the entry uh into the first theater and probably be the scientist like first entry into a combat zone and then each one after that is uh a different location and probably an, a location that is in increasing difficulty either to, to reach or like more complicated technically 
Uh, and then you sort of see the people who you set up at the beginning dying here and there. And I probably, if they get replaced, I'd probably replace them with someone relatively faceless or nameless. Because mm-hmm. uh, so you only really care about like the three people you have left who were there with you at the beginning. Right. Um, and then that sets up some nice uh, options for like, self-sacrifice or trying to save these particular people because i know them and like them even if like more numbers of people will die over here yep uh, but yes in either case uh probably this is not going to be something that you're going to run for six months well i think th- then the other challenge that we want to make sure that we're addressing is what do you do when the pcs die <laughs> right like it's it's one thing to kill off the npcs and have the pcs deal with those costs but what do you do actually at the table when the pcs die yeah, I think that that's important. And one of the reasons that it, it might work really well in PBTA is you don't really ever need to die, right? You can be removed from theater just by saying, hey, I've taken a hit to like all five of these stats. And so I am out of the combat. You're not necessarily dead. You could be dead, right? But it, it's a question for people at the table, whether that character is actually dead or like has suffered some sort of grievous wound is and is unconscious, but we'll be back next time with some repercussions. Oh, so you'll need to think about. So that. if you're doing this totally like with a custom custom PBTA system, right? What if you make your stats actually your escorts? So when you take hits to your damage, you know, when you take hits to a stat, what you're doing is losing an escort, an actual person, right? So instead of having like cunning as a stat, what you have is Jeff is a stat. You know, like Tony is a stat, and when she dies, or or when you get a hit to Tony, that's Tony, your escort, is giving like her life to keep you moving forward. I kind of like that because I mean that really leans into the the PCs as like scientists and researchers not really having any combat right. skills. So each of your combat skills can be represented by a person who is basically there to do that mm-hmm. for you, right? The sniper is your attack right. stat, basically. Right. Yeah, you just and then, we got to figure out yeah. what are you doing, <laughs> like other than just wasting your ablative armor of people. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I'm here to yeah. do. Okay. <laughs> my, my builds, uh, I I build new people. Right. <laughs> uh, and then at the end, in terms of like how the game ends, I think at the table you all don't need to decide this out loud. I, I wouldn't actually decide it like. Um, consciously above the table but there there should be a sense of whether this is going to be like a heroic end or if this is going to be a very pyrrhic victory and and whether people at the end are wondering you know was this all worth it right all right shane let's move on to plot hook number two okay so i call this one boeing somehow sucks worse cool very timely rip straight from the headlines the headlines so yeah basically if you haven't been following the saga of the 737 max uh which is one of boeing's like mid-sized jets um a major defense contractor has built a plane that has a fatally flawed autopilot and then shipped it to customers anyway and now the 737 max is literally falling out of the sky um so there was as part of the flaw in this autopilot um logic algorithm right um that was followed by a cover-up there were corners cut costs cut all of that stuff um but what if that was actually introduced deliberately by a secret cult um 
perhaps either something in the source code like is causing bugs to manifest like it's manipulating itself uh and causing these issues or maybe like attempts to fix the source code is causing some type of madness in the developers who are looking at it um you know something truly insidious is happening and not just you know your regular like corporate greed and cost cutting okay so what is it that the PCs are doing you are investigating this problem so you need to kind of figure out what's going on here figure out who's on your side who's part of the cover-up um who caused this issue and failure in the first place right so like was it the um the outsourced company that wrote the code was it the internal team of testers who failed it was it the executives who were pushing a product timeline and all of this stuff and then ultimately like who is paying the cost of this right like commercial flights are falling out of the sky and like what if this is part of you know our uh military you know what if like what if this is happening on like the f-18 or something so is this a game that starts out pretty mundane and like the pcs are actually really just like a normal investigation team and then as they uncover more layers of the conspiracy it turns out oh wait there's a crazy i mean i think it could be yeah totally um Mm -hmm. it could also be like your government agents right like in a like a delta green type situation where you like your investigators right here's a thing that needs to be investigated um maybe somebody involved has some tie to majestic or whatever um and so you've kind of got to go in with the cover story of just doing a mundane investigation but you know you've got to sort this out yeah you already know that like there's this is more than it appears okay so this campaign definitely ends with the pcs trapped on a plane that has this yeah (laughs) desperately trying to hack the autopilot (laughs) (laughs) I actually really like the idea of sort of playing into the 1930s, 1940s campiness of some of this and actually having the autopilot be like an actual robot. Oh, okay. <laughs> that like sits in the co-pilot's chair or like a, a HAL kind of AI mm-hmm. where you're like, okay, pull up, pull up. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> but the the lats are already aligned, Dave. <laughs> We're at the perfect altitude, Dave, and falling. <laughs> All right. So, what system would you run this in? Um, I think you. I, I think the system that you would run this best in, I think, is either going to inform what this cult, what like what caused the introduction of this fatal flaw, um, or based on what you want the fatal flaw to, or like w- what you want that cult to be, pick the system that maps to that very well. Either way, it's very investigative, and because it has layers, like I think you have to use something like Gumshoe. Um, because what you don't want is a bunch of red herrings and that sort of stuff where the players don't trust any information. Like you want them to be Mm -hmm. driving forward, right? So like gumshoe systems give you facts, tell you they are facts and you can, you know, hang your hat on those as like, we know this is true because it was just the clue. Right. Um, so I think like, if you look at what is the cult that introduced this bug doing right like is it a cthulhu cult that just wants to invoke madness and i'm sure there's some type of specific elder god that would make more sense than cthulhu but but yeah i don't have enough of a lovecraft background to identify that person um but it could be something that's like dedicated to like an earth deity or spirit or elemental um right and like planes flying in the air are kind of the opposite of the earth right like what should be on the earth should stay on the earth kind of thing um or yeah i love you come home <laughs> right <laughs> um or like you could totally do like knights black agents and it's a vampire thing I, I mean maybe it's not even as malicious as it is like they control a competitor to boeing 
and they just want to bring Boeing down because um, vampires are selfish and capricious and humans don't matter that much and vampires don't really fly commercial, I don't think. <laughs> you know, um, or like Delta Green, right? Like if, if it's something where um, a majestic agent or somebody who has been like maddened by some experiment from majestic, right? And Delta Green has to go and clean it up because this is obviously dangerous to the world. Yeah. I could see this being the beginning of an even larger campaign if it turns out that the planes aren't actually crashing. It just appears that they are crashing or they are crashing and some people are being abducted instead of actually like being caught in the the wreckage. Oh, hey, you could do a time watch game if you want to use a different gumshoe system and you have to save all these planes (laughs) by hopping through time. (laughs) And from plane to plane. Right. <laughs> no, but I, I do like that. I like the the kind of the lost effect, right? Of like this plane just disappeared and no one knows what happened to it. Um, that sort of thing. Yeah, that actually keeps the airline from immediately becoming the bad guy if like all of their planes are just disappearing in midair. But only their planes, only one particular type of plane. Well, it's also it's wait, the lost thing would be that it appears to crash, but the people on it are actually still alive, right? Oh, yeah, that yeah. one. But, I mean, I guess what you're saying works, too, for kind of a different theme. Wait, in the real world, like, I don't know, whatever, I don't remember Lost. <laughs> the, the in the real world, did, is... did that plane appear to crash and like, there were no survivors, or did it just disappear? No, it, it crashed and there were no survivors. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, and then there were. And and, and there was a bear <laughs> and the smoke. Whatever. Cool, Okay. <laughs> Uh, so what are some challenges? Um, one, it's ripped from the headlines. So you've always got the risk when you do this of somebody recognizing what you've ripped. And this one's probably pretty obvious. So they might shortcut things, um, which is probably fine because you want to get to the conspiracy more so than like the boring TDM of like, hey, did this developer like not check in his code correctly? And like, was this lazy tester screwing it up? You know, like that's actually probably not the interesting part. And then the other thing is, is when you do conspiracies and you have like kind of the, the element of people who are loyal, people who are protecting their jobs and people who are malicious, like sometimes the, those layers can confuse players, right? You get false red herrings and, and things like that, where they can go down paths where they're nowhere closer to the actual truth or objective. Yeah. And that's something that's, that plays out much better in linear fiction than it does with players who will always uh, get the wrong end of the stick when presented with a clue. <laughs> that's and that's why I like Gumshoe is because Gumshoe is very clearly like mechanically like, hey, here is the fact that you got from this story. <laughs> like wherever you are, here is the fact. Right, your character is not confused about mm-hmm. this. All right, let's keep moving. Cool, cool. This next one is called Gorillas in the Mist. Not gorillas, gorillas, but gorillas like freedom fighters. Gorillas. Yeah. So the last remnants of the old kingdom have been beaten back to the mountain of Alvar. Its treacherous terrain keeps the defenders relatively safe, but its central location makes it a target of constant raids. It is a forest fortress under siege. So the PCs here must strike quickly and then fade back into the trees. They will battle enemy forces as well as the forest itself. And they're goal is to keep the faith and rally the survivors who are hiding on the mountain until eventually, somehow, their prayers are answered. All right. Uh, this does not sound quite as system-dependent as the other ideas. 
Yeah, I think this is something you could run on almost uh, any system, right? The whole point here is like there is a place that is difficult to navigate and difficult to survive at that is also the PC's home, um, which means that they have they have like knowledge of it. They have expertise. Um, they can get around more easily than others, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to survive right. there. Um, now, this prevents everyone that prevents them from being swarmed all the time by uh, a more overpowering force. Uh, but it does mean they need to be strategic, and it's an opportunity for them to be strategic because this is basically a game that is a series of skirmishes intercut with wilderness encounters. And I would, I would think probably like as a GM, uh, I would set this up where there is like a, a very sort of general uh, plot map of the objectives that the enemy wants to achieve in order to take the mountain, probably, you know, three or four of the max, uh, and then potential objectives or locations where the party can decide to strike in order to cripple the enemy. Right. Uh, so basically the party is choosing their targets, whether it's like the bridge uh, that the, you know, the assailants are are building across the, the chasm at the foot of the mountain uh, or whether it's like the research station uh, where, you know, they are developing the energy that um, powers their war machines or whatever, sets up an ambush, fights, and then runs away. And I think most of the fun actually comes here from being like, all right, this is your mountain. You know, this is your, this is your lair. You, you can deck it out in different ways. You can, like, you can Ewok village it if you want. You can set up traps in lots of different places. But if you have now chosen a location... Uh, you live here. You get to set up the ambush. It's a bit like in Morning Glory when uh, you guys set up the ambush for Nishim Shadar. I just put the battle map down and was like, great, where is it and what does it look like and what do you guys do? We build a flump house. It. Yes, of course, you, of course you build a flump house. Yes, why would you not build a flump house? It was critical to winning that battle. So I think in terms of level, it sounds like we want to be kind of mid-level where you're strong enough to like have confidence that you can win in combat, but not so strong that like the wilderness as an existential threat is neutralized. Yeah, definitely. Like you don't want access to teleportation because you don't want them to be able to, you know, get around the mountain too quickly. Now, if for example, the party is like, we're going to spend most of our time digging tunnels so that we can uh, skirt around the forest and move quickly from one location in the mountain to the other, then great. Then travel time should be, should be easier. Uh, but that means that there were other things that they couldn't set up, right? Like acid pits. They didn't, they didn't set up any acid pits on the mountains. So what are some challenges here? Well, I think there is a danger that this basically just evolves into a like fight of the week scenario where like every session you sort of, sort of show up uh, and they're like, um, I don't know. Let's, let's, um, like, let's do the Canyon ambush, I guess. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you, you, probably basically set up like hey eight different objectives or you know locations or whatever that you can take in just each week someone's like i don't know throw a dart at the board and let's pick a right. thing the the key here is stringing these encounters together into a coherent narrative so we've talked a bit about this um with using different factions uh, i would basically run this as like the other side the assailants the the like people who have the mountain under siege are also on a clock and a timer. And so each time the party chooses a target, 
yes, they may be able to foil whatever is happening here, but at each of these other locations, progress is happening. Right. Uh, and so you're not deciding, oh, what fight do we want to fight today? You're deciding where do we want to cripple the enemy so that we don't need to deal with them having like secure supply lines or them building their own tunnels into the mountain or like them building aircraft in some way that, you know, will be able to attack us from above. And then the other thing here is like after that, what is the end game of this? Uh, I've sort of set it up as like hold out until your prayers are answered. That might be literal prayers like, yeah, you know, divine intervention. Right. You have to prove your uh, worthiness to the God of war to bail you out. Right. Uh, it could also be, you know, some sort of like MacGuffin that you're waiting for, or it could be, you know, your allies from neighboring countries who are, you know, basically coming from the other side and like uh, you're waiting for the cavalry cavalry to arrive and the cavalry always arrives at the speed of plot. Right. So, well, yeah, I mean, you can do this too, like a, especially since it's, it's mountainous, right? Like you make it a winter thing um, mm-hmm. where like the, the pass through the mountain is basically closed, right? So you're cut off until the spring thaw and you just have to make it to spring we yeah run this as like a um a 49ers high in the rockies Mm -hmm. i like that that also means that you could bring in do not let us die in the dark night of this cold winter oh good lord which is a mini game uh, of survival in the winter Uh uh-huh the one that encourages cannibals uh, only because I said you can get a certain number of food units by eating a body. <laughs> okay, well, it encouraged us to be cannibals. <laughs> yes, it did. Uh, I think canonically the game gives food units to pets. Okay, not, not to humans. That's nice. <laughs> not, to, not to other people. Uh, yeah, actually, and that'd be an interesting way to sort of track supplies, and then you are sort of dealing with the the math of a siege, right. which can be fun, but you can also completely drop that if it's not. Right. All right, and our final one. So I call this one, the carnival comes to town. Oh, this is going to be lovely. So uh-huh. nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A traveling carnival comes to a small village that the PCs inhabit. Everyone enjoys the carnival. End of story. Yep. All done. Great. That was a great plot hook, Shane. <laughs> You're welcome. So yeah, no, I mean, it, it. you know, you've got the wonder and spectacle of performers and magically enhanced rides and fun houses and all that kind of, you know, carnival stuff. Um, but then when the carnival leaves... Uh, someone discovers that one of the children has gone missing and the PCs have to find her. So like, you know, eventually like you chase the carnival down, discover the workers are perhaps the thrall of illithids or beholders, right? Something, something stranger and more powerful than just, you know, your average carnies. Abelot um, scum. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they, you know, they kidnap people from, various towns that they go to and press them into service. So all of the carnival workers are in fact thralled and, and sort of forced into servitude. Um, well, she got captured by mind flayers and she's already gone. Never mind. She's def- definitely dead. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> guess, Back to the carnival. I guess that's a risk. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So how would you run this? So I think I would start with the carnival having left town already. Just go ahead and cut that out um, and start with, you know, the frantic parent entering the tavern, um, trying to gather up people to help find the missing child. And, you know, over the course of that, they can get the clues together that kind of tie into the carnival itself. Um, And then, you know, obviously follow the carnival, backtrack to other towns they've been to, whatever it is, um, to 
figure out that there are these suspicious events um, that are occurring in every spot. You know, you head head back to the town nearby, and and they just like slam the shutters. No, no, there's no carnival. There's never been a carnival here. <laughs> yeah, what carnival? <laughs> um, you know, and like ultimately, this leads to some type of confrontation or accusation. You know, the the bigger the town or the city that you're in, you know, like I think that would be an interesting kind of showdown. Um, because you might be like kind of the country yokels who are blaming these wonderful entertainers for passing through town. Um, I don't know. It strikes me as like a very like low level D and D kind of adventure, you know. Mm-hmm. I like this a lot because it has so much creep factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that instead of starting with like the parents bursting into the tavern and being like, "My child is missing," that it could start off with just like twenty minutes maybe of the PCs at the carnival and everyone sort of like describes one ride or attraction that they were really taken with oh, okay and if this is like a bit of a longer campaign and not just a one shot then some of the things that they remember can be used uh or flipped later like something they really liked about it was actually the thing that it used to trap people or uh that ended up being like weird or creepy about it yeah no, no i like that because then you can kind of outsource the like fantasy carnival aspects right um, the reason I, I say start after the carnival has left is because what you don't want is the the world's most boring GM description of like all the fun you're having at a carnival. <laughs> but I think if you flip that and put that on the players, I think that would work really well. Um, my, my thought was you can always do like skill checks to sort of flashback to the experience they had at the carnival. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, oh, you try to think about this, like give me persuasion. um, like and recall the conversation you had with one of the one of the carnival workers, right? Something like that. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think that way works too. To just kind of have them build the carnival and then you twist that and make it terrible later. You know, regular GMing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Nice family you've got there. Uh, okay, well, what about some challenges running this scenario? So you have this kind of like you have these kind of dual challenges and it's going to be a problem one way or the other and you don't know which depending on your group but like you either need to make sure that they have the clue in hand that they need to pursue the carnival right so something needs to lead them to chasing the carnival um that can't be so overt that um they just go oh no the carnies did it go kill them or the flip side is because the like the carny worker who is you know secretly committing crimes on the road or whatever is kind of tropey like because carnivals are always kind of creepy and obviously like they're core to the plot somehow you took the time to describe it um the pcs will probably just assume that the carnival is somehow responsible and like shortcut the investigation to go chase them down anyway without the evidence they need this might be a good chance, though, to have it be weird that either the carnival is hard to track down or some people can't seem to remember or the party gets lost before they actually get to the carnival or when they do get to the carnival, like they can't find anyone that they're looking for or they may try to attack and it doesn't necessarily work, specifically because you said they're dealing with actual mind flayers right. who can mess with their perceptions of things, especially if they're low-level low D&D characters. And they don't immediately have their brains eaten because the the illithids are trying to maintain cover right um you you could you could kind of have this as like um you know when they go to the next town um something strange has happened there as well but the the people in the town have been mostly covered 
by the by the mind flayers to not remember that this thing happened right mm-hmm. so they find something weird about that and maybe there is like one character the hermit or or whatever who witnessed something and wasn't spotted by the mind flayers and can actually speak to the pcs to set them along the path yeah or it's like a kids on bikes thing where like the mind flayers didn't bother mind wiping the children because who believes children right exactly yeah so that will definitely add to the creep factor um and i think that that'll help kind of keep the pcs engaged on that um plot direction i dig it um then of course the other problem that you can run into is uh, the pcs just want to fight everybody too early and don't want to bother investigating because this is D &D. um you just kind of need to make sure that they understand that they will be fighting the entire village at that point because absent evidence right like villagers love this carnival it's very entertaining they themselves enjoyed it while it was in town it's the only so, thing we do all year. Yeah, exactly. It's the it's the midsummer festival. Right. Also, you may find that it is difficult as a second level D and D character to kill the carnival workers. He's a literal strongman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and an actual lion tamer. <laughs> like, welcome to the house of mirrors. Make a perception check. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Do you hear that, Ishan? No, nothing. Nothing happened here. Nothing out of the ordinary. Nothing strange. Everything's wonderful. Hmm. Weird that we're just moving on to the character creation forge and re-rolling characters. But I think it's probably fine. All right. Well, before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. And you can join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by 1985 Games. Dungeon Craft is a new book filled with cutout game pieces that let you create an engaging world for your next campaign. Put down your marker and use the pieces from the book to craft your world in real time. Dungeon Craft provides rivers, trees, caves, building, hordes of monsters, dragons, chests, spiritual weapons, and so much more. Simply cut out any of the thousand plus terrain pieces that are in the book and place it on a map. So I would actually encourage you to go look at what these tiles look like. We've talked before about like, oh, okay, we have some like relatively inexpensive uh, maps, like paper maps that you can just like buy from wizards. And those are cool but i like the fact that you can take these what are essentially dungeon tiles but uh much thinner and therefore you get a lot more of them for less money Mm -hmm. uh and like put them on other maps or put them on your battle map right to like customize them basically and the thing i actually like about these is if you flip them over you often get a different version of the same thing so if you have a tile that is a room if you flip it over it's the roof of that building oh or if you have a tree uh, it'll be like a tree in green summer greenery and you flip it over and it's autumn or it'll be like a, the tree but on fire. That's nice. I like that a lot. Yeah, and then like if a thing happens, you're just like, well, whoop, flip, done. So unlike 3D terrain, Dungeon Craft doesn't require too much storage space, something that is near and dear to my heart living in a small New York City apartment. All the pieces also come bound in a spiral book. Simply cut them out. Simply cut out the ones you need. And you can store them right in a binder. The whole book fits neatly on into any backpack for the on-the-go DM. And aren't we all? Aren't we all on-the-go DMs? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, also available are the Hell or High Water companion books. These two companion books were made to be used with Wizards of the Coast 2 newest adventures, Ghosts of Saltmarsh, and Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus. I'm going to give props to the name Hell or High Water. Mm-hmm. That is very, very good. <laughs> I dig it. All right. So for more information on Dungeon Craft and to pledge for your copy, go to www.1985games.com. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Warlord. Mm, I skipped 4th edition, Ishan. Could you tell me what the Warlord <laughs> is? Well, the Warlord was the most popular slash the most controversial class in 4th edition D&D. Uh, it got removed from 5th edition because Mike Merles doesn't like Warlords. Yeah, don't shout my arm back on. Yeah, it was awesome. It was one of the awesomest classes in 5e. Uh, the warlord was a melee combatant, typically, who leads the charge into battle, heals their allies with inspiring words, grants extra attacks. Um, they were a leader, like a, the leader um, role in 4th edition, uh, but they were like secondary, like they could be secondary anything. They had so many subclasses, they could... They could do basically anything. They were so versatile. They were so cool. They like maneuvered people around the the board. They made other people attack. You basically like pointed at someone and were like, "Everyone, get them!" And mm-hmm. then that happened. The mechanics like supported that. It was it was wonderful. All right. So what is the build? It is War Cleric Six, Glamour Bard Six, Battlemaster Fighter Eight. Okay. So we've got six levels of cleric, which means we're going to get some healing. Yeah, and of course, pre-flavor that is your inspiring word, right? Like, you're it's a morale booster. You shout someone, like, back awake when their face was in the mud and they were about to die. <laughs> right, you, I mean, you inspire them ev- to get back up for one more one more push, one more fight, one more Right, swing. I mean, that's every war movie. Right. Uh, you'll get third-level spells. Again, reflavor these is Marshall. Guiding Bolt uh, grants advantage uh, after you, you hit with it. So basically, you're like, point and hit, hit this one and hit him there. Mm-hmm. Crusader's Mantle gives HP to uh, everyone around you as an aura, which is uh, you shouting all your allies uh, back awake. Spirit Guardians lets you do one thing the fourthy warlord could do, couldn't do, and actually like summon uh, allies because as uh, the warlord you are you're a capable capable combatant on your own, but you really shine when you also have capable allies. Right. You'll get an extra attack as a bonus action, wisdom mod times per day, and you get two channel divinities each encounter. You can either give yourself a plus 10 to an attack roll, or as a reaction, give that plus 10 to an ally on their attack roll. So no one misses when you're around. Right. Then with six levels of Glamour Bard, we'll be getting our Bardic Inspiration as well as Song of Rest, so that helps make your allies more competent and also gives them a little extra healing. You get uh, mind-affecting spells that I think work really well with someone who may often like yell at people. Like you could go the commissar route, right? Where you're not really making a suggestion; you're yelling at someone and giving them an order, and then they yeah, go do it. Exactly. Great. Vicious I mockery. S- like my, <laughs> this is a tongue lashing. My my bolt pistol suggests that you get back <laughs> in the fight, soldier, <laughs> guardsman. <laughs> You get Mantle of Inspiration, which lets you use your Bardic Inspiration to grant allies temp, HP, and shift. This is like the quintessential 4E warlord move. It was, all right, everybody, you get some like preemptive healing ahead of time, and now position yourselves at the beginning of combat so that we're all in the right places to actually win this or to get the hell out. Mm -hmm. 
You'll also get enthralling performance, which you can use for speech. Um, this lets you charm. Yeah, you just got to talk to someone for a minute and you charm them. And then, of course, you'll get counter charm uh, to prevent your allies from falling victim to other charm effects. I'm pretty sure that's just you slapping them in the face, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, Wake up! I mean, that's maggot. how I would do it. <laughs> uh, and then once per day... Uh, you can use your, I think it's Mantle of Majesty. Uh, for one minute, you can use Command as a bonus action, which is just in the middle of the the fray. You've like taken over uh, in the command center, right? And you're just shouting commands and everyone's doing what you want, including enemies. Right. From Fighter, you get Second Win, Extra Attack, a Fighting Style, probably Protection or Dueling, and Action Surge. And then you'll get five maneuvers as Battlemaster, along with five Superiority Dice, which I believe will be D8s. And... You, there's a lot to choose from here, but probably the ones you want to look at if you want to emulate the 4E Warlord are Commander Strike, which lets you make someone else attack, Distracting Strike, which uh, gives someone else advantage on someone you hit, Maneuvering Attack, which lets an ally move without provoking, Pushing Attack, which pushes an enemy, and then Rally, which gives someone else temp HP. Uh, I love the fact that, especially coupled with the channel, div- no, with the um, extra bonus action attack you occasionally get a few times a day you can nova with your two attacks action surge and then your bonus action attack and drop all five of your superiority dice in a single round mm-hmm. just like the first chance you get on the first moment of combat and then you just you know cast spells the rest of the time <laughs> <laughs> you mean yell you yell spells <laughs> right <laughs> all right so in terms of leveling order I think we want to start Fighter 5, then get four levels of Bard, probably two levels of Cleric, and at that point we're level, you know, 11, feeling very much like a Warlord. Um, And then it's just a matter of closing out those levels. So go ahead and finish off Fighter, then Bard, then Cleric. Yeah. Um, If if you want, though, you could do Fighter 1, Bard 1, Cleric 1, which is probably what I would do, even though it's not the most optimal, because then you basically have everything you need to really feel like you're doing this right. The mid-levels get a little slow, though. Yeah. All right, so before we wrap up, let's take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. All right, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're going to be talking about optional rules, the ones we use and the ones we don't, in 5th edition D&D. And in the Character Creation Forge, we're building Sly Cooper. Well, that's it for episode 212 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond is the official digital toolset and game companion for Dungeons and Dragons. It is also extraordinarily useful if, for example, you want to build a 20th level character and need to know exactly what all of these different subclasses do because you can't always keep them straight in your head because there are so many of them now. Uh Uh-huh. You can make sure you know what all the abilities are and that they all make sense and that it all fits together. Just like that, because you can see everything. No flipping through books, which is my favorite part. Yeah, uh, my laptop lies flat on the table. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can use D&D Beyond to build characters, track campaigns, run adventures. 
There's lots of free content, and there is plenty of information and articles from writers like James J. Heck and videos from people like Todd Kenrick. And of course, the D&D Beyond team is always updating the site with new features, smoothing out bugs, uh, making a bunch of improvements. So the platform is always improving and getting better, uh, even though it is fantastic as it is now. So if that sounds interesting, go check it out at dndbeyond.com and tell them Total Party Thrill sent you. There's no additional link. I don't know how you would do that. I guess you could message customer service and be like, hey, there's this podcast I listened to that told me to come to you guys. You should listen to them too. So you could do that. You yeah, do send that. an unsolicited email. That's my recommendation. <laughs> it's the subject line. That's key. Right. <laughs> you, you may have won. 